Well, this morning we are continuing in our series entitled Curious. And we'll be asking the question this morning, how can we please God? And you know, that just might be the most important question we could ever ask. You know, whether or not we are pleasing in God's sight has both present and eternal implications. I love the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, he says, Therefore, we make it our aim, we make it our goal to be well-pleasing to him. You know, I, I believe that is all of our desire this morning, to be pleasing to God. But maybe like you, or maybe this morning you're wondering, like I have at times in the past, am I pleasing to God? Or, or how, how can I be certain that my life is pleasing in God's sight? Well, thankfully, we can take this question and all of our questions to the Word of God where we find that Jesus has the answer. You know, and, and not only... Does Jesus have the answers, but Jesus himself is the answer. Not only that, Jesus is the perfect example, the one perfect example of a life that fully pleased God. There was never one moment in the life of Christ that he was displeasing to his Father. Not at any time did Jesus do anything whatsoever outside of his Father's perfect will. So we look to Jesus first and foremost as we seek to be pleasing in God's sight. And in John chapter 8, we, we hear Jesus' words and he says, I always do those things that please him. Boy, that's my desire, that I would be able to say that as well, that I always do those things that please the Father. Sadly, I know I fall so short at times, but I want to do better. I want to, you know, eventually be able to say that I always do those things that please God. And then in Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, I love this, and we're celebrating baptisms today, which, which is so pleasing in God's sight. But when Jesus was baptized, we read, it says, Then a voice came from heaven that said, You are my beloved Son, and then the Father speaks these words over the Son. He says, in whom I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. Again, Jesus, he's not only our perfect example of one who is pleasing in God's sight, but he is also the one and the only one who can make us pleasing to God. You see, outside of the work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary, not one person on this earth could be found to be pleasing to God. Romans 3 declares, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You could say, For all have sinned and are not pleasing to God. In Isaiah 64, God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he says that all of our righteousness... Apart from him, all of our efforts to please God, to, to be found right in his sight, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It falls far short, but thanks be to God, 
through Christ, we are accepted. And we can be made pleasing in his sight. As 2 Corinthians once again declares, For God made Christ who never sinned. See, we have all sinned, but Jesus never sinned. And God made him to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right or be made pleasing with God through Christ. It is only by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can approach God being made right, being made pleasing in his sight. And that truth, that foundation of Calvary leads us directly into the the body of our message this morning. We're going to be looking at five individuals who were pleasing in in God's sight, five unlikely God-pleasers. Some of them are are real people, uh, and a couple of them are from the parables of Christ, but I believe all five of them put together, uh, illustrate for us, and, and, and give us a roadmap of what a life looks like that is pleasing to God. I find it interesting that, that all five of these individuals were, were really despised by the general population, or, or, or at least disregarded, um, every single one of them. But despite being despised by the world, every single one of these individuals that we're going to look like in time brought delight to the heart of God. Now understand, there are literally hundreds of examples that we could look to this morning. And and what was challenging for me in preparing is to settle on these five. And you know, maybe this morning there's some individuals in Scripture that are coming to your mind. Maybe you can can post them. You know, just the first person in Scripture or or even in our world today that comes to your mind of, of a life that pleased God. You know, I think of Daniel and Joseph and so many other people in scripture who just lived phenomenal lives and brought great glory to God. Um, So again, this is, you know, this message this morning, this is not by any means exhaustive. We're not going to cover the entire spectrum of of, of what a life that pleases God looks like, nor are we going to look at every single scripture uh, that talks about how we can, as his followers, be pleasing to him. But I encourage you this week to, to explore and study further, go deeper, you know, look at the lives in Scripture that the Lord leads you to and, you know, apply the truths of Scripture to your own life. But again, this morning, we're going to look at five, five people, five unlikely God-pleasers. But before we jump in, uh, let's pray one more time. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we, we count it a high privilege to study it and to read it, to, to learn. And God, I pray you'd give us listening ears this morning, help us to understand and comprehend what it is that you want us to understand. God, help us to apply your truth to our everyday lives. May we not be like the one that scripture speaks of that looks in the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like, but may we be the one who who hears your word and applies it to our lives and allows it to grow and produce fruit in us. So God, we commit this time to you. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first individual we are going to look at comes to us in the form of, or in in one of Jesus' parables, and it's the contrite tax collector. The contrite tax collector. And 
There's five lessons that go with these five individuals. And the first lesson we learn from this tax collector is that the people who please God recognize their great need of him. We find this story in Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and, and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For our purposes this morning, I think it'd be safe to replace those words that were justified in this way. He returned home pleasing in God's sight, pleasing before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see, unlike the Pharisee, the the tax collector in this story, this parable, recognized that apart from God, he was hopelessly lost. Hopelessly lost. And in order to live a life pleasing to God, this is where we must begin. This is always the first step. Every single person on the planet, doesn't matter how good they may think they are or how good others may assume them to be, without Jesus Christ, they are hopelessly lost. Without Christ, we are hopelessly lost. You know, as you, as you read through the Gospels, it, it becomes clear that Jesus had no patience for self-righteous individuals. I might dare to say that nothing caused him more righteous anger than when religious men took took confidence in their own righteousness before God, who who took pride in their own works. This always upset Jesus. On the contrary to that, I would say that the individuals who, who brought Jesus the greatest joy, who bring God the greatest pleasure, were those like this tax collector who recognized their great need for him and came to him in humble desperation and dependence for him to touch them, for him to forgive him. So the question is for us this morning is, do you recognize, do we recognize that apart from Jesus Christ, we too, like this tax collector in Jesus' story, are hopelessly lost? Do we recognize that, that our heart, apart from God, is wicked? We have a depraved heart apart from God and we need his mercy and his grace 
We need our sins to be forgiven. In Isaiah 66, we read this. It says, but on this one I will look, God speaking here, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and he who trembles at my word. Who trembles at God's word? He who is of a contrite heart, a contrite spirit. So this is where we begin, recognizing our great need for God if we are to be pleasing in his sight. So the first person is the contrite tax collector. The second also comes to us in one of Jesus' parables, probably the most well-known of the parables. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. But for our message this morning, I've, I've entitled it The Compassionate Samaritan. The Compassionate Samaritan. And the lesson we learn is that people who please God respond to the needs of others. They respond to the needs of others. Again, in the Gospel of Luke, this time in chapter 10, we read, a man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man, and if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. If you, like me, have been in the church for some time, you have no doubt heard this story on a number of occasions. And, you know, sometimes the familiarity of it can, can lessen its impact. I know it, it has for me at times. You know, I, I, I like to believe that had I been in that situation, that I would have responded just like the Samaritan did here. But the reality is that, is that so often, you know, in my life, when I'm presented with opportunities to respond to the needs of others, when I have an opportunity to show compassion to those in need, boy, I come up so short. I too often hold back due to my own fears and due to, you know, the thoughts of my self-preservation. You know, we live in a crazy world and, and so often I'm thinking about what could happen or what could that person do to me. I, I think of self so often and I, I so often give just enough or just what's expected of me. I fail to, to show the kind of compassion which is on display here in this story. Well, my hope and my prayer this morning is that, that I would be and that we as Crossroads Church would become more and more compassionate, that we would indeed be quick to respond to the needs of those who have been neglected 
and overlooked and beat up by this world, that we would see them and respond to their needs. Hebrews chapter 13 says, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Then a well-known verse in James chapter 1 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I believe all of us would want to be more compassionate. I believe we want to be quick to respond to the needs of others. So, So how can we do it? How can we become a more compassionate person? How can we as Crossroads become a more compassionate church? I'll tell you this, we will never accomplish it by sheer willpower or or by our own strength. But only as the Spirit of God enables us and equips us and teaches us and, and, and burns onto our hearts and into our souls that when we show compassion, when we extend ourselves to others, the person we are really showing compassion for and showing great care for is Jesus himself. Jesus said it in Matthew 25. He says that to serve those in great need is to serve him. He said, for as much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. You know, that's the key. To see in the face of the hurting, in the face of the broken, to see Jesus. Kayla Mueller was a a young lady raised in a middle-class home in, in Arizona and At a young age, God gave her a heart of compassion, and and she knew at a young age that she desired to serve God in in missions around the world. And in 2009, shortly after graduating from college, Kayla packed up her bags and headed over to India, where she served the, the, the poor and the destitute there in that country. After some time, God God led her to travel to war torn Syria. And she began working with, with a multitude of, of refugees there who had been displaced by, by that awful and, and brutal civil war, which, which in some ways continues even to this day. Well, Kayla, when she was there with some others, was, was abducted, taken captive by some ISIS terrorists. They took her, uh, imprisoned her, abused her, in, in, in unbelievable ways, both physically and sexually, even the, the, the leader of ISIS himself, Baghdadi, uh, really abused Kayla. And what's remarkable is the light that Kayla allowed to shine through her to the other captives and, and terrorists alike. And, you know, we don't have time to go into all of the details uh, of Kayla's life or her work there in Syria, uh, but eventually she indeed gave her life as, as she was killed by terrorists uh, there in Syria. But not before her life made a profound impact on those in Syria and, and now those really 
around the world. And at one time when she was back home following some of her missionary journeys, somebody asked her, in fact, it was the local uh, Prescott newspaper, they asked her why she did what she did and what brought her to, to travel around the world to these desperate places. And she had this to say, she said, for as long as I live, I will not let this suffering be normal, something that we just ex- accept. It's important to stop and realize what we have, why we have it, and how privileged we are. I will always seek God. You know, some people find God in church. Some people find God in nature. Some people find God in love. I find God in suffering. I've known, <clears throat> excuse me, I've known for some time what my life's work is, using my hands as tools to relieve suffering. <clears throat> and then listen to this. Kayla said, I find God in the suffering eyes reflected in mine. And then this prayer of hers, if this is how you are revealed to me, this is how I will forever seek you. If this is how you are revealed to me in the eyes of the suffering, then I will forever seek you. Powerful words from this young lady who is at this moment with the one that she saw in the eyes of the suffering. You know, one day, we too will be there, looking into Jesus' face. You know, I, I pray that before that day arrives, I will come to see Jesus a little more like Kayla did. That I will have compassion like Kayla had that I will show concern and, and go beyond what's expected, me, expected of me like the compassionate Samaritan did. For that kind of selfless compassion is always pleasing in God's sight. Our third individual this morning also happens to be a Samaritan. Uh, this time the story's not a parable though, but a, a, a real life event. We call this individual the grateful leper, the grateful leper. And the lesson we learn from him is that people who please God remember to give thanks. People who please God remember to give him thanks. One more time in the gospel of Luke, this time chapter 17, it says, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. They lifted their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know, without question, a heart of gratitude, a heart of thankfulness, 
is an essential element of a, of a life that, that pleases God. You know, no, nobody enjoys being around somebody who is ungrateful and unthankful. And, you know, I, I think few things are more displeasing in God's sight than, than one who has been abundantly blessed by him and yet constantly complains and, and grumbles about their life. And the question that, that came to me in, in reading this story is, you know, why did the other nine, the nine who didn't return to give Jesus thanks, what was their reason? Why did they not see it necessary to come back and give Jesus thanks, to offer their gratitude to him? And and of course, no definitive answer can be given to that question. But in contemplating that passage, or this passage, I believe what happened to these nine lepers that were healed is probably what very often happens to me and what happens to us here in our, our culture. See, they were so distracted, I believe, by the blessing, they just forgot to bless the blesser. They were distracted by the blessing. They were so captivated by the gift, they disregarded the giver. They were so anticipating what was ahead that they forgot what was behind. They were so determined to fulfill their duty, they didn't take the time to worship their deliverer. Boy, may that not be said of us. We're so focused on our, our duty, what we're doing, that we forget to worship our deliverer. As you well know, we are in the midst of a crisis in our country. We've talked about it. We're, we're living it. Each and every day, we're, we're reminded. And, you know, I believe that this crisis we find ourselves in was, was birthed at least in part by, by, a general, by the general population that is, that is becoming more and more ungrateful, by, by, by a growing population that has forgotten God. You know, we've forgotten also the, the countless sacrifices of men and women who have gone before us, literally losing everything to make this, this nation what it has been and, and what it is today. And there's a couple of quotes I wanted to read that really challenged me this week. First is by a gentleman by the name of Robert Emmons. He says, gratitude is about remembering. If there's a crisis of gratitude in our contemporary life, as some have claimed, it's because we are collectively forgetful. We have lost a strong sense of gratitude about the freedoms we enjoy a lack of gratitude toward those who lost their lives in the fight of freedom, and a lack of gratitude for all the material advantages we have. Furthermore, we don't even realize that we have become forgetful because we can't ever remember being different. Wow. And then this quote by somebody very familiar to us, Abraham Lincoln, says, We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace, multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings 
were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. What a powerful line. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and for forgiveness. For our nation to be great, America must become grateful again. We must become grateful again. And if we as individuals and collectively as the body of Christ are to be pleasing in his sight, we must be a grateful people who remember where we have come, where we have come from. Remembering what God has done for us in redeeming our souls, giving us an eternal home to look forward to. Our fourth person this morning is the believing Roman. The lesson we learn here is that people who please God rely upon his provision. This time in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him, saying, Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed Turning to those who followed him, he said, I tell you the truth, I have not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown out into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. What faith from this Gentile, this Roman centurion. And a few weeks back, I I had the opportunity to speak and and I focused on, on Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee and and as, as the disciples woke Jesus up and, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, he turned to them and, and he, he asked them, where was their faith? He was shocked at their unbelief. And contrary to, to, to that moment, Jesus here is amazed at the faith which is possessed by this Roman soldier. This, this man who believed without seeing that which the disciples had to see in order to believe. That was the fact that Jesus possessed all authority in heaven and earth, and there was immeasurable power in his word. See, faith is absolutely necessary in a life that pleases God. 
Hebrews chapter 11 states this plainly in verse 6. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if faith is, 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 a, is an essential element in pleasing God, we, we ask the question, well, what is it? What is, what is faith? Faith is much more than an intellectual belief that God exists. You know, most people define faith in that way and, and end right there. It's simply believing that God is. Well, faith is much more than that. Biblical faith goes beyond a simple believing in God to the act of placing our complete trust and confidence in him. True faith results in action. False faith stays put. I love the story of of Charles Blondin, and no doubt many of you have, have heard this story, but to me, it never gets old, especially in relation to our walk of faith. And um, Charles Blondin, he lived in the 1800s, and he became really the greatest tightrope walker in the entire world. And his great feat was walking across a rope stretched across Niagara Falls, 160 feet above the water, 1,100 feet across uh, the falls there. And and he did all kinds of crazy stunts. He, he walked across the, the tightrope wire blindfolded. He went on stilts. He even drug a little stove out to the middle of the, the tightrope and, and cooked an omelet. Just crazy things. And one day, Blondin was there at Niagara, and a, a, a great crowd had gathered to, to see him perform. And that day, he, as the story goes, he had a wheelbarrow with him. And Blondin, after performing a couple of feats, he took that wheelbarrow and he headed across Niagara, pushing that wheelbarrow in front of him. And when he got to the other side, the, the crowd that had gathered erupted in, in cheering and just, just thrilled at what Blondin could accomplish. And, and at that moment, he asked the crowd, he said, now, now who believes that I can take that wheelbarrow and have somebody get inside as I push it across the falls. And the crowd roared in their approval and said, yes, you can do it. They cheered him on. And, and then at that moment, Blondin looked across the crowd and asked, can I have a volunteer? And the cheering died down. People began to get quiet and slowly walk away. That is until one man, his manager, stepped forward and got into the wheelbarrow. See, true faith isn't just believing that something can be done. It's having the action to see that it happens. Well, let's be a people who are willing to act upon what we believe. A people who have that unshakable and unwavering faith in God that that believes and trusts that no matter what we may face as individuals or as a church body or as a nation, that nothing will overcome us because he will see us through. He will be with us to the end no matter what we might walk through. That's the kind of faith we need to have today. 
Well, our fifth and, and final illustration this morning comes to us with a little bit of a, a need for speculation. The fifth person is the obedient adulterer. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but you'll see that the lesson we learn is that the people who please God are ready to obey. Are ready to obey. And I'm not going to read the whole story, but one day Jesus was there in Jerusalem and he gathered in the temple or he went to the temple to teach and a crowd gathered around him. And as he was teaching the, the multitude, eventually a, a group of religious Pharisees and teachers of the law stormed into the, into the crowd and pushed their way through, dragging a woman whom they threw at Jesus' feet. They had just caught her in the very act of adultery. They brought her there to the temple, brought her before Jesus, and began to, to question him. They were wanting to, to trap him. They, they didn't enjoy Jesus' popularity with the people. And they saw that, that the poor and the needy and, and really all people from all walks of life were coming to him. And they wanted to try to get him in a situation which was a, a no-win situation for him. And, and so they, they looked at him and they said, the law of Moses declares that this woman should be stoned to death. What do you say? And scripture, it tells us, we'll, we'll look at some of the verses there, starting in verse 6 of John chapter 8. It says they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. In effect, agreeing with them that the penalty for adultery was stoning, but it had some other requirements, needed some trustworthy witnesses. So Jesus said, all right, stoner in essence, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. And, you know, I love to, to just imagine this scene, and I encourage you to try to do the same. Again, sometimes we hear these stories, and, and, and they become so familiar, and they, it lessens the impact. But put yourself in the shoes of this woman, this, this sinner who is guilty. She's standing, or on her face maybe, before Jesus, and this angry crowd has gathered. And she hears Jesus' words that, you know, for the one who has never sinned to throw the first stone. And I imagine utter silence until finally you hear a stone drop to the ground. And then another, and then another, and another as, as footsteps, as these men are leaving. One after another, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus, the only one who had never sinned, was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, I believe with all the compassion in the world, said to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And I believe through tears and a shaking voice, she said, no 
Lord. What a statement of faith. No, Lord, no one. And Jesus in that moment lifted her face, I believe, and said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Again, I imagine at that moment being brought before Jesus, this lady had never felt more defeated. In her mind, her condemnation and her punishment was absolutely certain. She was about to be executed. But in that moment, her life didn't and her life began. In that moment, she didn't die, but instead she was born anew to new life. No, we're not exactly told that in Scripture, but I believe it's safe to speculate that this woman's life was forever changed by that encounter with our Lord, with her Lord. And again, I believe as as he lifted her shame-filled face and looked into those tear-stained eyes and spoke those words, I do not condemn you. She was transformed and left that place ready to obey the command of Jesus to go and sin no more. I'm sure she didn't live a perfect life. None of us do. But I can almost guarantee that from that day forward, she lived a life that pleased God. Some commentators, and I'm not going to debate it, but some believe that this woman was, was, was none other than Mary Magdalene, who, who became one of Jesus' closest followers and was the very first to, to encounter our, our risen Savior. Could be. Regardless, she was a desperate sinner in need of a Savior, just like Mary was. She met him that day. She began to be a God pleaser. <clears throat> so what sin this morning has, has you weighed down? Are you like this, this woman suffering under the weight of guilt and condemnation? That, that nagging thought of, of thinking, I'm not pleasing in God's sight. I can't go before him. There's too much baggage There's too much sin. I've done too much to ever be accepted in his sight, to ever be pleasing to Jesus. Let Jesus lift you out of the dirt. Let him lift your face and lift your countenance and wipe your tears. Hear his words that say, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Be ready to obey. May we all be ready to obey whatever it is he might place his finger upon. And may that be our prayer. God, show us this morning anything in my life that is displeasing to you. I'm ready to lay it aside. I want you more than anything. I want to experience your favor and your presence more than anything. And I want nothing hindering my relationship with you. So show me Jesus. If there's anything displeasing to you, and make me ready to obey. We open this morning in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 with Paul's words. Therefore, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. And he goes on in verse 10 and says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's a sobering verse, a sobering reminder, but it's a reality. There, there is coming a day in the, in the near future, I believe, that every single one of us are going to stand before God and give an account with his help, with, with his assistance. I believe we can face that day not with fear, oh no, I'm going to stand before God, but with faith, trusting that because of what he accomplished for us, that we can stand before him and be pleasing in his sight. With his help, we can do that. As we recognize our hopeless state apart from him, as we respond to the needs of others with compassion, as we remember to daily thank him for his provision and constant care over us, as we rely upon him with hearts full of faith, and as we are ready to obey him in all areas of our lives. We will one day soon be wrapped in the arms of our loving Savior. And by his grace, his mercy, I believe we will hear on that day those, those marvelous words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You know, this morning, if, if you don't know him, you can. This morning, if you feel like your life has not been pleasing in his sight, you can begin today to be pleasing to him. And he will welcome you, love on you, have compassion upon you, lead you and guide you for the rest of your life. So if that's you this morning, just pray with me. And then make sure you let somebody know about this commitment that you're ready to make. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for, for the power that is contained there to make us sinners accepted in your sight and pleasing to you. God, now I, I, I pray with all those out there who may not know you, who are not pleasing to you, but want to be. We confess that you are God. You are Lord. We recognize our sin has separated us from you. And we put our faith and our trust in the cross of Christ and what you did that day on our behalf, taking my punishment, our punishment upon yourself. You rose again from the dead, guaranteeing our own resurrection and our own salvation. So God, we confess you as Lord. We ask for forgiveness of sin and we commit to turning from that sin in humble repentance, determining to follow you the rest of our lives. That's our prayer, God. I pray for those who are maybe praying that for the very first time. Enable them to stay true to you, putting their trust and their confidence in you, pleasing you all the days of their life. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for your word, the promises that it contains. And again, we thank you for the breakthroughs which are happening at this moment. They're going to happen this week. Lord, and as we move forward in our walk with you as individuals and as a church, Lord, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, Crossroads. Thank you again for being with us this morning. 
Um, I trust you are, are having a great day, and I, I trust you'll have a great week. God bless you. Take care.